0: Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome back to the ICS Pulse, Industrial Cybersecurity Pulse podcast. With you, as always, are your two hosts, me, Gary Cohen, and me, Tyler Wall. We should have a good one for you today. So I was a couple of weeks ago out at S4 in Miami, recorded several podcasts during that time, so we'll be meeting those out here uh, um, on the podcast over the next couple of weeks, this time I talked to Victor Atkins, a person whose name I have an incredible amount of trouble pronouncing for some reason. Victor, Victor Atkins. There we go. I got it. Uh, He's the director, executive advisory services for industrial cybersecurity with 1898 and co. Uh, Really interesting talk. Interesting guy. We talked a lot about um, critical infrastructure, ITOT. This was before the national cyber strategy came out. It actually dovetails really well. Uh, So very interesting guy. Another good conversation that we had at S4. Um, So should be a good one today.
1: Absolutely. But of course, as always, we have one. This is a shorter question today. Um, How many, if any, pets did you have growing up? And what were those pets?
0: Uh, I had a series of cats growing up. Um, At various times, we had one or two, never more than that. Uh, first one was named Winky when I was a tiny little kid, orange, fluffy carpet of a cat. Uh, and then we had different ones. My, my favorite one. So you got me on a whole thing now is there was a cat that I found that was a stray. I used to, I lived in Northern California, had a paper route and I would take my back when people delivered newspapers and I had my, I would take my bike, my little BMX out and I would put the newspaper bag over the handlebars. And over the course of like a week, this cat would just follow me every morning. I pet the cat and then he'd just follow me around like a kitten-ish. And finally, I was like, I don't think this cat has a home because he would follow me farther and farther. So I actually put him, I mean, I was probably 12 at the time, put him in the uh, newspaper bag. And he rode the rest of my route with me and I took him home, uh, much to my parents' chagrin. And we put up flyers and stuff and no one ever claimed him. So that cat became ours. Yeah. Wow. And I, and, and to this day, my, uh, my family still has cats grew up with them, still have them. How about you?
1: Uh, yeah. So I got my first pet when I was in fourth grade. So when I was 10 and we got a bearded dragon. So I had a bearded dragon from that, that one lived for oh, six or seven years. And then my parents got two more bearded dragons after that. And, um, one of the bearded dragons, I don't know what exactly happened. It was really bullying the second bearded dragon, though. Uh, and so eventually the second bearded dragon died. And so it was just like this one left
0: standing. and uh, Just died of natural causes. It sounds I like there might have been uh, an investigation necessary. considering. Yeah, just I think out.
1: there should have been a further investigation. <laughs> yeah. um, but at, around the same time, my youngest brother got a gecko for christmas and so he named the gecko oh what he named the gecko Gollum. he named the gecko Gollum, and um oh it was like three days after getting this gecko he had the bearded dragon and the gecko laying on top of him and the bearded dragon ate the gecko and it was probably the most scarring thing that has ever happened to him and honestly to me quite frankly that was a a lot of screaming going on in those couple of moments. Uh, and then my parents got him a second gecko to try and cover up the childhood trauma of it. And that one is still alive to this day. Its name is uh, Mushu. And we don't talk about Nalam in front of him at all, just because we don't want to bring up the past trauma. Um, and But since then, uh, over COVID, uh, my parents got dogs. So there are two dogs that reside there now. So...
0: Someday they'll eat the bearded dragon and it will all come full circle. You it's know, the circle actually, of life,
1: Tyler. Actually, the bearded dragon died at some point, I think in the last yeah. year. And I think everybody was kind of like good riddance. So <laughs> I think it was a uh, kind of glad to walk them off the door.
0: That bearded dragon was going to end up in prison anyway. It, it, had a, it had a long rap sheet.
1: I know. Seriously, murder. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, Twice? at least at least one murder. At least one murder. If I didn't know that your family has ties to Hawaii, I would think the whole lizard thing was strange, but it kind of all ties together.
1: Yeah, it does a little bit. I mean, so in third grade, my third grade teacher had a bearded dragon in his classroom. You know, I thought that was such a cool thing. So I eventually wanted a bearded dragon. So I eventually got a bearded dragon. So the first one was named Rex after Captain Rex, as in Star Wars. And then the next two bearded dragons were named Commander Cody and Boba Fett. And then... Uh, the two dogs are named. We have like a little uh, Yorkie poo. I think it's a Yorkie poo, and that one's name is Zuko. And then uh, a Aussie doodle, which is a, a tough dog to handle um, in a suburban environment. That's definitely a sheep herding dog. Um, and she she's named Maisie. So
0: yeah, nice. Um, yeah, my in laws used to have a dog named Maisie. Not the same dog, just a good name, I think. <laughs> uh, so, so let's talk. Uh, let's talk cybersecurity here for a second. Might as well. That's what the whole thing's about. We might as well talk about it for a second. Um, like I said, met met with Victor Atkins at S four. Had a really good conversation about critical infrastructure. One of the, one of the funny things that happened. So, S four probably most of the people who listen to this podcast know what that is. It's Dale Peterson's event that he has down in Miami. And we, Victor and I were trying to find a nice quiet place where we could do this podcast. And uh, there was on the Wednesday of that week, there was a thing called the Cabana Sessions at a different hotel out around the pool where all the vendors were going to go. Uh, 1898 had a room. And so they were like, yeah, we'll just do it after the Cabana session start. We'll go in the room. But it'll be quiet. Once it's done, we can walk over to the Cabana Sessions. But there should be nobody there. We'll have the room to ourselves. So it was great. Uh the audio is a little bit better uh, on this one than it was in the last one where I was at the cabana sessions by the pool. But um in the middle of the we had the door closed and it was nice and quiet. And in the middle of the podcast, which you will hear, uh Dale Peterson, the uh the founder of the show, the proprietor of the show, uh walked in to remind us to lock the door when we were done in the middle of the podcast. So uh, you will get a guest appearance from Dale Peterson. You'll hear him quietly say, "Just remember to lock the door," and then we try to go back to having a podcast after laughing for a little while about it. Wow. So, um, but yeah, so we we talked a lot about about the public private partnership needed to protect critical infrastructure. Because when you think of critical infrastructure, whether that's you know the defense department or whether that's energy water nuclear all of those things a lot of times it is not in the hands of the government it is in the hands of private industry so you need that public private partnership um and so we talked a little bit and you'll hear in the podcast about how the number of attacks on critical infrastructure is going up and you know victor mentioned that it, basically the threat actors un understand that critical infrastructure is critical to the well-being of the country but they they know how difficult it is if you were to take down whatever it is power water in the middle of winter and then you're fighting another war having to try to fight a war i mean look at what's happening in ukraine trying to fight an actual hot war but then also trying to take care of the homeland at the same time uh it, it certainly raises the temperature a little bit so um you know this national cybersecurity strategy Uh, which came out um, at the very beginning of March, is the federal government's response to this kind of surge in ransomware and nation state threat activity. Uh, And one of the things that I think is really interesting about it is it kind of shifts the burden of the responsibility for cyber resilience uh, away from people who can't really afford to, to do it you know individual consumers small and medium sized businesses and is trying to shift the burden to these kind of multi billion multi million dollar tech giants that are selling this software that often is has technical flaws has vulnerabilities in it so it's a that's a really big shift in the way that the government has has tried to regulate cybersecurity
1: yeah, and that's going to be an important part too within these regulations because, I mean, like you're saying, I, these little mom and pop cybersecurity shops, they can't – they it's harder for them to contribute as much just because their, their budgets, their wingspan is not as large as these massive billion-dollar giants or even multi-million-dollar giants. They're all just behemoths. Um, but another thing that I kind of pulled away too from this uh, whole strategy report is one uh, well one of their five pillars talks about um, critical
0: infrastructure. there's there's several other pillow pillars. but um <laughs> defending critical the- infrastructure, disrupting and dismantling threat actors, shaping market forces to drive security and resilience, investing in a resilient future, love that word resilience and forging international partnerships to pursue shared goals. There's your five sure. pillars that it's built around.
1: Exactly. Shared goals resiliently. I'm surprised they didn't sneak that in <laughs> one more time. But uh, specifically with defending critical infrastructure, um, I mean, they talk about expanding the use of minimum cybersecurity requirements in the critical sectors to ensure nation security and public safety and harmonizing regulations to reduce the burden of compliance. I did not come up with that myself, by the way. That was directly from the document itself but um like i said i mean it's it's nice to see that they're trying to incorporate a plan and um just a foundation for uh defending against um attackers whether that be nation state or individual
0: and i think one of the reasons for this and interestingly enough victor and i talked about this although it was before the guidelines came out the strategy came out is, you know, why should regulations be a part of this? And I asked him that question, and his answer was essentially the voluntary approach hasn't really worked. Basically, saying, do the right thing, it's for the good of the country. It's not working without it being incentivized or de incentivized, carrot and stick, right? Without there being some sort of you get a benefit for doing it, or you're going to get punished, fined for doing it. People just haven't been taking the steps necessary. So there is a reason that um, government guidelines, government mandates, regulations have a place here because we need to raise that, like Tyler mentioned a few seconds ago, raise that those minimum requirements, raise the floor to where everybody is uh, is doing their part to try to protect these things. Because I think we all know, everybody who works in this industry or adjacent to this industry, that... Critical infrastructure is under attack, that critical infrastructure is vulnerable, and that critical infrastructure needs to, for lack of a better term, up its cybersecurity game.
1: Absolutely. And one of the pieces that they even specify, which is always interesting coming from Big Gov, um, but uh, engaging the private sector in disruption activities through scalable mechanisms, which is, I think, is particularly interesting just because, I mean, just given who who is in office right now, the party that's in office usually believes in more of a a centralized government. And so it's just interesting to see them wanting to engage the private sector because there is a need for um, just scaling this up as quickly as possible and realizing that um, this is just a a process that needs to happen swiftly, especially with what's happening geopolitically all across the world.
0: Exactly. So uh, with that, Let's go ahead and, and, and bring in Victor. Again, this was a recording that we did at S4. You will get a brief guest appearance from Dale Peterson. Uh, but this is Victor Atkins, the Director of exec, director Executive Advisory Services for Industrial Cybersecurity with 1898. And co. Uh he delivers industrial control and operational technology cybersecurity solutions and services that are tailored for clients and critical infrastructure sectors. He's also a really interesting guy, not that the people we normally talk to aren't, but he before he moved into cybersecurity and consulting with 1898, he worked f- for years for the US Department of Energy, not necessarily in cybersecurity, uh, although he had he definitely had a role in that, but you know, he. Has job titles on his resume like director countering nuclear terrorism and um, you know, deputy director for operations cyber intelligence directorate at the US Department of Energy. So he did spend a lot of years in government before moving into the private sector. So I think he's got a really unique view of um what the government can do and what it can't do, what it does well and what it doesn't do well. Uh and we and we talk even a little bit in the interview about the transition he made from uh, the public sector to the private sector, and and yeah, so I think I think he he brings a really interesting insight into this. So, let's bring in Victor. Very happy to have him on the podcast. And uh, here you go. Hi, everybody. This is Gary Cohen, live at S4. Been meeting a lot of great people during this conference. Today we are talking to Victor Atkins of 1898. Uh, had the pleasure of meeting you yesterday and uh, wanted to continue the conversation. Thanks so much for being with us. All right, Dave. I really appreciate you having me on. Look forward to having conversation. So I always start with the hardest question, which is, who are you? So I want to hear about your background. So I, I know a little bit about it, but I think you come from an interesting place. So uh, So how did you get from where you are to where you are now?
2: Oh, great. Thanks for asking. I uh, spent about 15 years in the U.S. intelligence community, Uh, did various roles from the Central Intelligence Agency to the White House on the National Security Council, started most of my career in nuclear terrorism, countering nuclear terrorism, countering state proliferation, uh, but always as a U.S. Department of Energy employee. So for 15 years, I was a DOE employee. Uh, starting around 2017, I, I was asked to start up the uh, cyber intelligence mission for the Department of Energy because we were by law uh, required as the sector-specific agency, is what it's called in the law, to help the energy sector uh, deal with cybersecurity risk. And so part of that responsibility for the department was to have a robust intelligence program that would be able to share information about nation-state threats to the power systems so starting around the middle of 2017 i was asked to come back to doe to start up that mission Uh, i didn't know anything about cyber at the time really i was just asked to kind of but i didn't know a lot about uh, intelligence analysis and building teams and things and so i had the i guess fortunate misfortune i guess about the first week i was on the job was the russian intrusion into the power systems uh, in 2017 uh, that got a lot of attention for our department and our, our, my role specifically. Uh, and it was good for me because I actually got to learn a lot about what the questions were, what were the information needs that not only policymakers but the energy sector needed to know about threats like that. And it really helped me sharpen uh, the focus of what we needed to deliver as an intelligence uh, analysis group uh, to help support the sector and to help support the government.
0: Very interesting. So um, you're – I'm just curious. What has the transition been like for you going yeah. from the government going into the private sector? Because I know that can be a little abrupt for some people.
2: Yeah, it was, it's – well, I was lucky because during that five years, I spent a lot of time interacting with utilities and energy sector, uh, private sector entities on the questions that they had and the concerns they had about the threat. And whenever we would give – or my team would give a threat briefing to them – almost always the executives would come back afterwards and say, you know, this is really interesting information, but what do I do about it? You know, what am I, how am I supposed to deal with this information? Uh, because the intelligence community is really geared towards giving policymakers information to support policy. It's not necessarily geared towards giving executives in an organization tactical information about how they're going to you know, reduce their risk. So I had a lot of experience dealing with the questions that they were asking. And so about midpoint of my career, 15 years in the intel community, I felt like I needed to make a change. And I was also very motivated by this idea that while the government is responsible for national security, in this problem, they own almost none of the assets. They have no responsibility over the private sector, critical infrastructure. So we, as the government, are very limited in what we can actually do uh, in terms of like securing these systems long term. So coming to Burns and Mac in 1898 was like a real opportunity for me because Burns McDonald is a architecture, engineering, construction firm that builds uh, has been building critical infrastructure for over 100 years. They've got they are actually one of the key elements of uh, the systems that we're trying to protect in terms of design and construction. And so I wanted to come to a firm that actually, if I could bring my knowledge about the threat and the risk, to help inform. The way these systems are designed and engineered over the long term i felt like i could make a greater impact on the whole system uh by being in the private sector so for me it's been i won't necessarily necessarily say easy because i have a ton to learn about the business and about you know the way consulting is different than being a government employee and all of that uh, i think that's just a you know going from one domain to another which is natural but i think a lot of the questions that I was already thinking about how to answer, and a lot of the questions that I'm now having to answer for clients were very the same things that I was asked when I was in the government.
0: It's an interesting point you make, because I think a lot of people, when they think about critical infrastructure, especially government actions to protect critical infrastructure, so much of it is not in the government's hands. You need that public-private partnership, or you're really not protecting the systems. You're not protecting these critical industries.
2: Yeah, no, I think there's a credible sea change that's happening philosophically within the government and in the private sector about how this isn't just the public side giving people regulatory guidelines and then making them comply. That's kind of been the natural relationship. You know, we tell you what to do, you do it. If you don't do it, we find you that kind of thing. I think in this case, uh, critical infrastructure has been a target for nation state adversaries for, you know, war fighting adversaries for over a hundred years. I mean, going all the way back to the U S civil war, the idea that a democracy, uh, particularly in democratic institutions, the, the, the critical infrastructure is a very prime target because you can actually degrade public support for a war-fighting effort if, they, if you can harm you know, critical services like power, water, and everything else. And so the government, I think, realizes that this partnership with the private sector is a national security imperative. It's no longer just uh, you know, a regulatory relationship. So I think over the last five years, mostly driven by these threats that we've seen in critical infrastructure space, Uh, The the government has realized that this must have to be more of a give and take and that we're really in this together. So I think we're in this period of time right now that we're in. uh, I think everybody on both sides of this divide are trying to figure out what the relationship really needs to be. That is much more of a partnership, which means give and take. If one side fails, the other side fails too. So I think we're all trying to figure out the rules of this engagement, I guess. But uh, I think it's changing even as we're talking right now.
0: The the level of threat on critical infrastructure has also increased. I think a stat from your company was that it's gone up 400% since 2020. Mm-hmm. What do you attribute this to? And it's a huge question. And what can, do, can be done about it? Solve the problems of the world. So
2: why, do, why are threats increasing? Is that really the question? Yeah. Yeah, I think that again, it's to that point I was, I was kind of making, that uh, our adversaries and the, our national security adversaries realize that our country is vulnerable to influence if they can affect public opinion about the government. We've seen this with even just the things like elections, but critical infrastructure attacks in particular, if we are in a period of heightened conflict, can really harm our government's ability to fight a war, sustain our war fighting ability just to, by attacking logistics uh, or public support for a, war, for a war effort if the public is suffering as a result of, uh, of a critical infrastructure attacks against things like uh, power and water. I mean if major metropolitan areas go down for weeks or months at a time in the winter it's going to be hard to like have a two front war where you're trying to take care of an adversary and take care of the homeland at the same time. They know that. They know that we are also more, the The attack surface is getting bigger because we are getting more digital in our control system environments. We are more connected by a communication systems. We're moving towards generation systems with renewables that are creating even more digital and communication connectivity. So that attack surface is getting really juicy from an adversary perspective. They know can, they can have an asymmetric impact for A relatively low investment for a cost perspective they can create payloads and weapons that can have enormous effect and they can deny that they did it so you know they can there's a non-attributional part to cyber that no other kind of system in a military toolkit affords an adversary so they know that this is a really uh, advantageous way to get to us and also uh, and it's cheaper effectively than other things. So I think we are just going to see uh, over time, as we get more connected in control systems, the adversaries will get more aggressive in that environment as well. And because there's no international norms around what it constitutes a cyber attack as an act of war versus an annoyance or whatever, uh, I think that there's always just pushing those lines about what is an acceptable, act of aggression short of an act of war and as long as those things are ambiguous right i think that adversaries will continue to push that envelope so i think all of those factors together are kind of pushing uh the increased they're increasing the number of uh Just think of sure attacks you lock your Door when you're done
0: okay because we're not around to check them sure we'll do okay <laughs> i got <cut> that <laughs> perfect yeah, that was just Dale Peterson. You know, right, of, of course. <laughs> yeah. We are at S4. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> he runs the whole show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, the government obviously has a responsibility to try to protect these systems to keep the government running or to keep the country running. Um, regulations have been coming out, different directives. What impact do you think these can practically have on critical in- infrastructure, especially because of what we talked about before that it, it has to be a public private partnership? Yeah so i think regulations have a place and i
2: do believe that the regulatory push that we're going to start to see from the government this is my opinion is a result of some frustration by the government that the voluntary approach of just trying to encourage asset owners to do more than just regular compliance under existing standards it just hasn't had an effect Uh, so Um, they've heard enough from the private sector that unless there are incentives or other kinds of ways to make a rate case for this or whatever the business model is that they're they're not going to make those investments in the system and so the voluntary just do the right thing model isn't getting the rapid effects that the government wants and the government in our government in our system has very few levers to actually encourage behavior they can pay for it you know but that comes with a lot of strings attached that that industry doesn't want or the government could just regulate the outcome and I think that 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 is starting to happen now we will see more and uh, I believe we will see more influence uh, emphasis on regulatory actions going forward the problem and we've seen this with some directives that have come out in the last couple of years is if the government is pushing out a regulation without a lot of expert input as to what the effect is actually going to be they can overshoot and create really strenuous or Let's face it, unimplementable solutions. You know, so they're asking for something that uh, an operator couldn't actually implement without also degrading their critical functions. For instance, right? Like you put too much cybersecurity into a system, you can't actually operate the system in the way it was designed. And so, I think that unless we find a balance between regulatory prescriptive actions and expert opinions about what the impact of those regulations are going to be. We could be in a bad spot where the government and the private sector no longer trust each other. So I think that I hope that the regulations are informed. I hope they are measured, you know, and I and I and and also supported with funding from the government through grants and other ways to make sure that people can actually. Uh, implement those solutions. Mm.
0: And that's obviously happened before in the government What they have overshot and yeah. then have to pull back a little bit. Yeah. Um, you mentioned something earlier about uh, the prevalence of network devices. I mean, that, which brings me to mind of the IT-OT divide, which we yeah. talk about all the time. Um, cybersecurity generally is thought of as IT's purview. And OT was air-gapped and we don't have to worry about the machines that are running consistently. Obviously, that's not the case anymore. Um, is there... A, we talked about this a little yesterday. The, the trend of of people worrying more about OT security is what your company does. Um, what suggestions? What advice do you have for security teams that are trying to to either overlay IT on top of OT, which is not very effective, or to get these teams to work together?
2: Yeah, I th- that's a, I think that's the challenge we face. That's the biggest challenge we face collectively. Is uh, part of it is, uh, it sounds so simple, but part of this is education, literally teaching, I think of them as tribes, people in the control center, control environment, or have their own kind of norms and uh, way they do business. And the people in the IT do the same, and they use different languages in some places to talk about the other thing. So some of this is just educating what each side is really trying to achieve. What I've observed in my experience is really trying to build integrated teams around specific problems. So, if they have a, let's just take a bulk power system like a transmission company or something, if they have a critical substation that's connected to a key control center that they know they have to secure, that if they lost that specific asset, they would be, they would lose a you know part of the interconnect, or they would lose a huge portion of their service area or something like that. Get and getting IT cybersecurity people in a room with the con- engineers, the control center operators, and representatives of the executive team, the the leadership, to really organize around the question: How do we reduce risks in this particular environment? Not as an abstraction, but this particular thing. And getting them to really force through either facilitated discussions or whatever it takes, workshops to get them. A to C, it's just very human stuff. They empathize or they see the other side where they're coming from, that one side comes to appreciate the challenges of the other. And then they actually start to design solutions for that particular use case. And if they can do that once or twice and they build relationships with one another, then conceivably you can scale that through the rest of the organization to other places in the the system. But if you don't have leadership support like top-down support uh i don't think it's going to happen because everybody in that system has a day job and asking them to also go do this other thing is like just extra homework you know and so if the leadership doesn't also express that this is a priority for them and that they also get involved in it and they expect that the outcome to be a, a collaborative solution then I think we won't get these integrated teams to really congeal yeah
0: so one of the people that we talked to in the podcast talked about this ITOT relationship like marriage counseling. Yeah. You just have to get them in the room yeah. and get them to understand what each other are doing
2: yeah, exactly I've had a couple conversations with here at this conference with representatives of either side of that, and it almost always goes the same way they don't understand me, <laughs> you know I gave them my requirements, they ignored them, and it doesn't matter who they are. It's, you know, it's the, just whoever is the other side of this discussion. IT says it about OT. OT says it about IT. I just believe that the way we categorize ourselves into these job buckets is also counterproductive because you start to align around your professional identity as opposed to, like, our job is to in this, in, in this organization is to protect our critical function, period. Uh, those who have cybersecurity responsibilities... Are but one element of that solution. The people who actually run the systems—they they know how to break their own systems. They also know, therefore, how they can talk to the security people about how to actually secure those uh, those assets against those very ideas that they know would cause a problem. So, yeah, I think that instead of try, you know, balancing themselves into tribe of IT and OT, it's like almost like you have to see yourself as just. We're security and operations professionals trying to, you know, secure a critical function against, you know, strategic risk. You know, that's how they ought to be thinking of themselves.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Another thing about the IT-OT divide that's, that's interesting to me is uh, we had this conversation yesterday that you said that sometimes it's easier to take an OT professional and teach them cybersecurity versus taking an IT professional and having them worry about OT. You seem like you're a perfect example of this. You said you weren't really dealing with cybersecurity in 20, until 2017, yeah. and now this is what you do. Yeah. So.
2: yeah, so I think the cybersecurity professionals, their training, their certificates, their whole discipline, their language game the model they use about confidentiality, integrity, and, uh, and uh, accessibility, it's all irrelevant in some ways to the digital environments of an OT environment. You know, so they come in thinking they're trying to protect the data, but in an OT environment, the data is not the issue. It's the, it's the uh, the data just serves a, a protocol to issue a command in a physical environment. So I think it's the engineers that actually, have the most like innate knowledge about how the op- how the thing works, and then you can teach them the concepts of cybersecurity, so they they get conversant in cyber. But I it's because I believe that solutions are not cybersecurity solutions; they're actually in some cases design and architecture solutions. They may be network design solutions, not necessarily adding a cybersecurity appliance or a certain encryption or anything like that. Those things play a role, but they may not necessarily be the lead issue. So having cybersecurity knowledge and being conversant in what they're, how you secure network and data is very useful, but I don't think you can teach a cybersecurity professional all the things an engineer knows and all the experience that a person like that in that environment has over a decade or something to get them to you know, really see the light, so to speak. So cybersecurity should be more like advisors in some cases to just to, instead of the ones who are primarily responsible for the security of the system is kind of how I look at it. Yeah.
0: And it makes perfect sense in the environment now. I mean, is it even feasible or rational to think of these things as discrete environments? No. Because there's so much interconnection now between them.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I've, I think especially we move moved to distributed energy resources and other things. I mean, this, this, perimeter between OT and IT is just getting obliterated It's and, and now that you have OT assets in the energy sector even in traditional substations and things that have digital connections to them uh, the idea of an air gap is just a fiction in, in so many ways and even new technologies that have bolted on uh, monitoring systems or relays uh You can think of them as like uh, smart devices, you know, they have features that are incorporated into their very design that create connectivity, like wireless modems, uh, you know, ethernet connections, anything that can create a pathway into that that an organization uses for control and transparency is the same vector that an adversary can use for disruption and destruction. So any path you're using that's digital is also a vulnerability. And so this air-gapping idea that you're just trying to protect it from the Internet I don't think is, is very, you know, actually applicable these days. And it's just getting more integrated to the point where that dividing line doesn't even really make sense, you know.
0: Absolutely. I think to finish this off, I'm going to ask you to, to, to see the future a little bit. Yeah. From the conversations you've been having here at S4, the conversations that you have internally at 1898, what do you see as the big stories in cybersecurity heading into 2023? What are the big trends that people should know about?
2: Yeah, I think for, since we're at an operational technology, ICS kind of conference, I'll focus on that. Um, I think that as we continue to move into this rush into renewables and the the changing landscape of the electricity sector, the digitization of that environment is moving faster than security professionals and, theor- and researchers can keep track. And so I think that we will, from a threat perspective, that's really my expertise, is I think we will start to see geopolitical situations drive more threat activity going forward at a pace that we're not used to. Uh, so if, let's just look at China, you know, we've, we're, the tensions there just seem to be, you know, getting more uh, intense by the day. Uh, I think as that relationship starts to get, if it does continue to get more uh, with more friction there, we will start to see more attacks. Where I think in the last six to seven years, it's really been more of a Russia kind of activity. I think of it as the Russia saga in the IT in the OT threat environment. You know, the last five to seven years has been mostly Russian type of attacks, but you know the the. The DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, and all of their unclassified threat reporting have talked about China having an attack capability against the United States for at least since 2019. That's about how long they've been publishing that. And so, if that is accurate and we start to have more tensions with China from a geopolitical space, we will probably start to see more attacks originating and attributed to China. And that's going to change the way people think about them from a strategic partner, supply chain. You know, we've already seen issues with telecommunications that the government has with them. So we might start to see more focus and attention on government action against them as well. So I I think that if that, I guess the long story short is if the geopolitical tensions, uh, the situation is really going to drive the threat landscape. And depending on where we are as a country and the countries that we're having problems with, we'll see more threat activity from them going forward.
0: And that's a very different kind of threat. Cyber criminals and nation-state actors, you're getting a very different level of threat. Cyber criminals are looking for an easy way in. If you protect your systems, they're probably going to avoid you. Yeah. Nation-state actors are doing it purposefully.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think that cyber criminals, particularly ransomware actors, you know, they're there to make money. It's a business now. It's an incredibly, you know, it's, it's a very organized business. Uh, but the, the kinds of threats that I concern my, have concerned myself with in my career and that I'm talking about here are really purposeful, um, with intentions and capability designed specifically for desired effects to uh, to shape our government's response. And those things are in the physical world against our own critical infrastructure assets, energy and water, I'm just thinking of them in particular. And so, yeah, I think that as um, the military and intelligence apparatus of those countries, they are doing that for a reason. It's a military reason. And it, they are doing it to have specific effects. And again, if these things, that we are going through heightened tensions, we will start to see those effects. And the, the scary thing about cyber is not always do we know where it came from. We didn't realize how long they may have been in that system to be able to have that effect. Uh, I think of when I look at the threat landscape, it's like we are literally looking at a show to straw, show to straw of what's probably out there. There's probably all kinds of things that we've never detected or seen. That the first time we see it will be the day that we suffer an effect, and so you know I think that as that stuff starts to happen again, we're going to have to start to realize uh, the risks of a certain relationships we have with certain countries, and the risk of this overemphasis on control, a uh, digitization, and what we're going to have to do as a country to really lock that down. Which again, I think has an effect. If the Russians hadn't been doing all that they've been doing for seven years, we may not have S four with a thousand people at it today. I mean i think people really because of these threats it's really driving these um it's driving the response to it more security more research more attention if the effects get more intense the response and the and the dollars and the research will get more accelerated so i i do see hope there but in some ways it's it's unfortunate that our response gets driven by having been punched in the mouth you know so like i think that is i'd like to see us we're trying to be proactive but uh, a bad day for us is usually what drives us to be more aggressive. That's been our history, and I don't see that to be any different here.
0: I mean, it's a nice, optimistic way to look at it. For every Solar Winds and Colonial, it does raise the awareness, and yeah. people take it a little bit more seriously. And hopefully, we're raising our game a little bit. So, yeah. so yeah. Uh, I have to also point out this is Victor's first podcast. I hope it was fairly painless. You did a great job. Hey, thanks. <laughs> thanks so much for being with us today. I hope you're enjoying S four and. Uh, yeah. I appreciate your time.
2: No, I really had fun. It was a great conversation. Thanks.
1: All right. And that was Victor Atkins. I believe I said that right this time. Uh, first try. Oh, that's great. Um, but he yeah, had a lot of great things to say about the <clears throat> private sector and critical infrastructure. I mean, one of the things that I know I definitely liked a lot about what he was saying was basically about ITOT convergence and um, how IT and OT shouldn't necessarily be considered separate entities, entities anymore, and more so just this one homogenous being, if you will—not a being, it's not sentient—but um, you know, just like this universal uh, term, rather than IT does this, OT does this. It's—it's. Uh, it's, I mean, because all falls into the same bucket with uh, digital transformation and. Now the being spoken about industry 5.0, they're all coming relatively interchangeable terms. I mean, obviously the other two are more. Oh, goose is in the background. Are obviously more um, broad strokes, if you will. But uh, I mean, I think all three of those are pretty transitive across across planes.
0: Did you have geese flying by while you were saying that? I can't hear that. No one else can hear that. I know, know, but I did. (laughs) I just thought I would acknowledge them. It was at the very same time you were doing that, I had my mic on mute because the ambulances or fire trucks or something were going by. So, Uh, But no, I I thought it was, you know, we talk about ITOT convergence and digital transformation and all those things all the time on this pod. Um, But I thought he was the first person who's come on and said, and everybody says, to be fair, sides need to work together it can't be one or the other you can't layer it solutions on top of ot and imagine it's going to work when you're talking about buying committees or coming up with a solution for ot security you got to bring both sides to the table i think everybody who works in this industry understands that but you know i i brought up it ot and he basically said to your point tyler i think it's counterproductive to even categorize it like that anymore to say that we're it and we're ot it's all of us need to be, you know, rowing in the same direction, pulling the same way to get this to work. So to say, you know, I'm OT, I don't have to worry about that is maybe counterproductive to your business now. It needs to be one unified team working to bring cybersecurity. And, you know, it, it's really not, the, the, my these are my words, not Victor's, but it's not, it, you don't really have the luxury anymore of going. I'm in IT. I don't have to know what's going on in OT. Or I'm in OT. I don't have to know what's going on in IT. You're part of the same team now and you both need to be working toward the same goal.
1: Yeah. uh, Ignorance is bliss isn't uh, a trademark you should use within this industry and specifically between IT and OT just because, I mean, where does that get you? It doesn't get you anywhere. It keeps you spinning in your tracks. So, I mean, yeah, just shaking hands across the way and recognizing that You are a whole and yin and yang coming together and just all of that.
0: Yeah. I also found him, like I said, in his lead in, I found him really interesting just because he spent so many years working in the government as part of the Department of Energy. Um, And that that whole idea that we talked about, you know, I, I talked to a few people from 1898 during S4. And one of the things they said to me was, you know, talking about that idea of ITOT convergence that and I don't know that they were recommending this, but saying it's almost easier to take somebody from the OT side and teach them the IT portion that they need to know than vice versa. Um, and I think he's he's an excellent test case for this because he really wasn't working strictly in cybersecurity until the last few years. I, I mean, it, it was something that impacted his job, but it wasn't his job. And so he, but he really understood um. OT systems, protecting critical infrastructure, that was his job as part of the DOE, and now he is working in industrial cybersecurity. So I, I found him, you know, we, we've, we've had other people say that to us before, well, it's almost easier to take an OT person and teach them the IT part or teach them cybersecurity. He's actually an interesting test case for that. So I, I enjoyed talking to him about his transition from uh, the public sector to the private sector.
1: Yes. And yep. So Victor, very interesting guy. I'm glad we could have him as a guest. And I mean, of course, we also learned not to leave your gecko and bearded dragon out
0: next to each other. Important. So many things to learn in this. So, or, you know, that a cat will, if you have a bag on the front of your bike, you can put a cat in it and it might just ride with you. Exactly. Important life lessons.
1: The cat networking system right there doing its work. <laughs> So for more great content, just like this, specifically the cybersecurity part, um, you can find us at ICSPulse.com, or if you prefer our previous domain, IndustrialCyberSecurityPulse.com. If you would like to reach out to us, um, you can reach us at, with Twitter at least, at ICS underscore Pulse. Or if you want to reach out to us individually, you can reach out to me via email. I am twalltwall at gmail.com, ah, not Gmail, twalltwall at cfemedia.com.
0: <laughs> now, I wonder if that is your Gmail address. I'll have to look. Uh, I am G Cohen, G-C-O-H-E-N, at also cfemedia.com. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much it for this time. We've got, I think, one more podcast that we have from s4 like i said we've been rolling these out so we'll have one more of those next time out so make sure you tune in for that one thanks so much for joining us stay safe out there